Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring magic and politics. With me is Gary Lockman, who is the author of Dark Star Rising Magic and Power in the Age of Trump. Gary is a historian of esoteric culture. He's written about 20 books on the great mystics of the Western world, Madame Blavatsky, the Hermetic tradition, Rudolf Steiner, Swedenborg, Aleister Crowley, and many others. Our conversation is over Skype. Gary is an American, but he's living in London. So now I'm going to switch over to the Skype video. Welcome, Gary. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. I know the uh, subject that we're going to talk about, magic and politics, magic being the esoteric form of magic, is a vast, vast subject. It, it goes back to ancient times, and in your recent book, you focus primarily on, on some of the modern examples of magic and politics. It seems to me that a, a good starting point uh, for our discussion today would be the Italian philosopher Julius Evola, who uh, really made a point of uh, combining uh, esoteric culture with the quest for power. Well, uh, thank you for having me on again, Jeffrey. It's uh, always a pleasure. Uh, yes, yes, uh, Julius Evola. Uh, he's uh, quite a uh, interesting character, uh, brilliant but highly controversial um, thinker, a dangerous writer, as uh, Herman Hesse referred to him in a review of uh, his most famous book called Revolt Against the Modern World. And uh, Evola... Uh, it was um, uh, sort of a. He's, he had quite a few uh, careers. He started out as a, a futurist in the early uh, um, 20th century in, in Italy. Uh, 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 the whole sort of futurist movement there was uh, jettisoning the past. Uh, Marinetti uh, had this love of um, the modern world and power and speed and engines and machines and things of that sort and trains. And if you know sort of futurist paintings, they always have this kind of sense of motion. And uh, um, Evola started out in that in that uh, kind of environment, but he soon sort of got tired of that. And then he was a Dadaist for a while. That was another one of the early, um, one of the big art movements of the early 20th century. And he was involved in this kind of absurdist uh, strange kind of um, nihilist kind of uh, art vision or non-art, anti-art vision. But then gradually he, he moved through all of these different things, uh, even into philosophy. But by about the, the late 20s, he became involved with um, a group of uh, esotericists uh, in Italy, uh, practitioners of uh, kind of hermetic path of magic. It wasn't sort of the Kabbalistic path that, say, people uh, like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn had pursued. It was something much more along the ancient Hermetic Greek and Roman sort of path. And one of the things they were trying to do was actually to influence um, the political world around them. Um, Evola had political views that were decidedly on the right. Uh, he was, as, I, as you could probably tell by um, the title of his book I mentioned, Revolt Against the Modern World, he was not a big fan of, of modernity. Um, everything had gone downhill. Uh, from some ancient ancient golden age in the past, and um, but he had a vision that Mussolini's sort of fascism could be used as a way to introduce ideas of what he called the it was the school of traditionalism this this esoteric philosophical school of traditionalism that was started by Rene Guénon um, in uh, who's a Frenchman um, in in the earlier uh, part of the century, and he actually practiced. Uh, spells, more or less, or, or magical rituals with others of this group uh, known as the UR group. Uh, and they were trying to influence uh, Mussolini's uh, policies. And uh, why this is re relevant for today is that uh, someone like Steve Bannon, 
um, who, as we know, was Trump's chief strategist for a while and uh, is now kind of uh, tub thumping around the world, you know, promoting his global tea party kind of movement and, and spurring on the waves and waves of uh, populism in different parts of the world. And, and he was just in Europe here not too long ago. He was a reader of Evola. Um, there's a New York Times article that came out in February of uh, 2017, and that was the headline of, of the article that uh, Bannon um, was uh, quoted in a speech, uh, a talk he gave to this select group of very conservative churchmen at the Vatican, and in the midst of his usual kind of rhetoric about the Global Tea Party and immigration and so on, he name-drops Evola. And he also, in the context of name-dropping Evola, he refers to someone who's in the milieu of Vladimir Putin, who is a reader of Evola as well. And that's a whole other uh, can of worms that we need to get onto later on. Yeah, we'll, we'll certainly come back to that. But uh, you see Evola practicing forms of esoteric culture, uh, magical rituals. I believe he wrote a book on astrology and things oh. of that. But, but his basic argument, as I understand it, is that the, the very purpose of uh, having any kind of uh, magical ability is to apply it in the world of power. That's what he was clearly interested in. Well, certainly that was something he was interested in. And um, if you know the ancient um, Hindu caste system, uh, you have the Brahmins who were the, the sages, sort of the priests, mm -hmm. the, the hierophants. And then you have the Kshatriyas, and they're the warriors. And Evola was more of a warrior. Mm -hmm. This is the difference between he, he and, and Gaynon. René Gaynon, uh, I mean, at the same time, uh, Evola was a scholar as well. Mm -hmm. He wrote on many, many subjects. He wrote on alchemy. He wrote on magic. He wrote on the Grail legend. Uh, he also wrote about politics. Um, he wrote about uh, Buddhism, uh, Tantra. So, um, you know, a remarkable scholar, a very, very good writer, but he has the these, um, you know, views that are just saturated with this very far-right philosophy. But his attitude was that um, <clears throat> he believed there was a, a kind of esoteric tradition that was the, the warrior priest or the warrior kind of monk. And I guess you could see this in the Knights Templar, and you could see it in maybe the samurai to some degree or something along that kind of line. And it was that kind of value, that uh, th those sorts of... Um, you know, necessarily belligerent, but kind of, you know, highly disciplined, disciplined uh, self-disciplined, kind of uh, uh, austere mm -hmm. um, kind of um, uh, uh, character that he, he wanted. And, and the, the spells, the magical rituals that he was performing with these U, uh, people in the UR group, where they were trying to, you know, imbue those those qualities into Mussolini's fascists, and but they actually gave it up after a while because mm -hmm. they, they just wasn't just wasn't working. Um, and Evola said the problem with with Mussolini wasn't that he was a fascist, that he wasn't fascist enough. Um, <laughs> he, he, he was uh, Evola was looking for this kind of ideal uh, kind of absolute fascism. But no, he certainly believed in. Um, well, at, at least up until about World War II. I mean, this was – he tried to influence Mussolini. He tried to ingratiate himself with, uh, the, uh, with Germany, with the Nazis. Uh, he had you know, a bit of success with both, a little bit here and there, but ultimately not. Mm -hmm. uh, and then after the war, um, he became sort of this eminence grease of these post-war – new far-right movements that were growing up in Italy at the time. And this kind of, you know, he, he was sort of the ideologue uh, for them because he provided an intellectual um, argument for their anti-democratic, their anti-modern, and, 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 and so on. And he, he was kind of seen as the far-right's Herbert Marcuse. So if you know the far left in the 60s, you had Herbert Marcuse. He was from the Frankfurt School, and you know uh, he wrote One Dimensional Man and, and, and books of that sort. And he was the, sort of this radical far left thinker. And so at least in Italy and uh, in parts of Europe, Evola around the same time was being sort of rediscovered. And he died in the, in the early 70s, um, so not, not, not too long ago. Mm -hmm. But in more recent times, he's also been picked up again by, I said, Bannon, but also people um, – that are on well, not on, uh, the people that belong to what's known as the alt right, the alternative right. This mm -hmm. is this kind of you know ultra conservative um, right wing counterculture that grew up around Trump's campaign and all of that. And uh, again, they they want to differentiate themselves from just sort of thugs and, and skinheads and and kind of hooligans, uh, you know, white power hooligans. Uh, uh, and so you know they. Um, 
see in Evola someone who can supply a kind of uh, philosophy. And, and, and there's other sort of um, you know, thinkers as well, people like Oswald Spengler, who was this German uh, philosopher in the 20s who wrote a fantastic book that was a bestseller at the time called The Decline of the West, uh, the whole idea that civilizations, you know, they're born, they grow, they mature, and they die. And uh, this was something that Spangler said was happening to the West, and Evola said, yes, but let's, let's help it along. Let's mm-hmm. go out and try and help it along. He was kind of a philosophical terrorist in that way, you could say. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it's fair to say that Evola's ideas were particularly taken up by Alexander Dugan, a very influential uh, Russian thinker who uh, has been developing this meme, I'm going to call it a meme, that the West is in decline, and that uh, in spite of all of the setbacks that have uh, taken place in the Asian European continent, that uh, there is a great nation willing, ready to be reborn uh, again out of the uh, rubble of the old Soviet Union. Yes, well, this is this was the person that um, Bannon uh, alluded to in this uh, talk he gave to the Vatican uh, about someone who was in Putin's milieu, who was a reader of Evola, and this is this um, fellow Alexander Dugan, and he's had a remarkable uh, car- uh, uh, career, uh, different sort of um, ideological changes. Um, he's kind of I, in the book I sort of call him an ideological quick change artist because he's he's adopted different sort of political stances. Uh, very, you know, very much on the fringe, very much, very, very radical, but at different times. But he he started out uh, in the 1980s as a uh, kind of punk dissident, and he he got in trouble early on. Uh, I think in his late teens, he was he wrote a kind of anti-Soviet song, and he was singing at a party. And this was a time when you you know you couldn't do that, and you got in trouble if anyone knew you were doing that. And uh, and that turned him, you know, very much um, kind of uh, uh, against against the system, against the Soviets. Um, but then um, during the whole breakdown, you know, after Perestroika and all that kind of thing, when the uh, Soviet Union was about to collapse, and in the early nineties when it did, uh, he um, suddenly found like, no, 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 he was a Soviet man he was suddenly went to the from the far anti you know to the far you know uh mm-hmm. supporter of and he became a, very much a kind of pro-soviet in a variety of different sort of totalitarian kinds of things and, and, and it's a he puts these things together in this um lego kind of way and and in the sense that he'll take something from you know soviet or stalin or he'll take something from uh national socialism or he'll take something from you know fascism and he'll put them together I, and the only thing he doesn't deal with is democracy liberalism Th- these are all the decayed you know uh the slag heap of, of of the progressive west this is all the dead stuff and the only thing that's left is to try and put together um these um <clears throat> you know more or less totalitarian kinds of system in this new sort of way and but he combines that with things like chaos magic and um a kind of mental magic you know the, the, this which is something evola did as well i mean the sense where evola believed that you know through these magical spells through the power of his mind he was able to affect events in the real world uh, Dugan believes this as, uh, as well. And if you're familiar with any of his work, he wrote this uh, uh, very strange book called The Foundations of Geopolitics um, in the early or well, the late 90s. And according to him, it became you know sort of a huge bestseller. Uh, it was being sold in supermarkets. I mean, I, I, I you know, but, <laughs> that's an interesting idea. But you know, apparently, you know, it was being shoveled out the door. Uh, but in it, in many ways, he sort of predicts. The whole business that happened in Crimea and, and Ukraine a few years back and is still going on. And as you say, this is part of this vision he has for something that's called Eurasia. And you know, we, we have this we have this word already, Eurasia, and it's kind of it just means that huge landmass that's you know runs from Europe to the other end, you know, to to Asia. But when when he uses it, it's it's more of a, an idea of, as you say, it's this kind of new civilization that's mm-hmm. rising up. Um, out of Russia to counter and the th- West. Well, yeah, yeah. Again, well, he has a particular. He, he, well, the way he sees history, there's a basic motor of history is this kind of ongoing battle between what he calls sort of the maritime nations, uh, what he calls the Atlanticists. So that would be you know Great Britain and the U.S. and you know uh, Japan, all the countries that are based on a kind of maritime uh, kind of uh, uh, life and character uh, against what he calls the heartland, and and this is this is the the 
biggest landmass on the continent, the mother of all continents, and this is Eurasia. And the heartland is like smack dab in the central of sort of Central Asia and Russia. And this is this is what's happening now in the early 20th century is um, this new civilization that's not Europe. Russia is not trying to catch up to Europe. You know, there was this picture of Russia as the kind of backward cousin of Europe. Uh, for a long time, and it was never quite able to adapt and assimilate sort of European sort of ways. I mean, the the the, the last sort of example of that was when the Soviet Union collapsed, and you had the first early years of you know democracy and the free market and all that, and there was an initial um, kind of celebration of all that, and then it just turned into the Wild West, and the oligarchs moved in, and the sort of gangland politics, and it just didn't work. And out of that, what 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 you have is you have Tsar. Vladimir, you know, who's who's been in power now, as like the czars of old were, were in power. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's done it, you know, through democracy, through votes, and all that. But we also know that he's able to somehow manipulate things in order to get the results that he wants. And uh, this is something that um, you know, the uh, Dugan is in that world, and and the ideas that he has um, in in. These, this book he has about geopolitics and and uh, other books. He's he's produced quite a few other books in journals and podcasts, and you know he has a uh, online presence. Um, um, has informed a great many of 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 Putin's the, the gestures he's made to this new Russia that, that's mm-hmm. rising up again now. Uh, so you know how much he buys it. And how much he, you know, can see it as a strategy, well, you know, that's up for grabs. But it, it is something that's influencing. And you can call that a meme, as you're saying. That's a meme that's had a real influence on the world because it's actually changed the face of, of, world, of, of world geography now. Mm-hmm. I mean, Putin has been quite clear that he thinks the great tragedy of the 20th century was the breakup of the Soviet Union. He wants to reestablish a Russian empire. Well, that's it. I mean, that's that. That's. Uh, I mean, again, I, I'm I've been working on a book about Russia, and so I've been reading a lot of Russian history. And the really, in his way, there's never really been a Russian nation. There's only been a Russian empire. I mean, the only time there was a Russian nation was after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and during the time when there was a Russia, and you had Ukraine, and then you had Georgia, and you had all the satellite states were separate. Mm-hmm. What 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 they called the near abroad. Mm-hmm. that's what they they call like the ukraine and all that the near abroad and it's basically yeah you're right he wants to sort of reabsorb those places because it seems natural these were naturally part i mean the whole mm-hmm. ukraine russia thing has been going on uh, for centuries i mean uh, kiev is where it all started it all russia yeah. started in kiev that's where it starts and you could understand why you know how uh putin would want to you know basically have that uh, yeah. so that he can have the true rush again and this ties into this idea i said earlier about spangler with this the civilizations you know they grow they're organic they reach a certain maturity then they they you know they die and this is what's happening in the west but what's what's happening before is this final kind of efflorescence of of this kind of free market global globalization what what the atlanticists powers want to do is turn the entire planet into an open free market global kind of you know uh, uh shopping mall you know shopping mall basically yeah <laughs> and 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 what dugan wants putin to do and what putin seems to be doing is to stand up for the traditional values you know this is the whole this is the link between this philosophy of traditionalism mm-hmm. and the sort of more general notion of traditional values and Someone like Dugan embraces that, and Putin is supposed to be kind of the, you know, the the holy, the the new czar of the new holy Russia, you know, standing mm-hmm. up against the decadent West. Well, I I know there are many paradoxes and contradictions uh, in in this whole scenario, and uh, you used a term earlier, chaos magic, and you mentioned Dugan is really into chaos magic. Uh, I know members of the alt-right here in the United States are also into chaos magic. Uh, I've noticed several Facebook groups discussing chaos magic, so it's, uh, it's a term that seems to be emerging more and more into the culture can you define that term and and explain it well i mean in a way a true chaos magician would say you couldn't you know define it absolutely because it has a very fluid uh inchoate chaotic nature but as as a kind of cultural uh phenomenon it seems to have started up in in the mid 70s uh late 70s around here in the uk around the same time as the punk 
thing was happening, you know, the Sex Pistols and and all of that. And similarly to that, it was sort of a do do it yourself kind of magic. Mm-hmm. And as I understand it, fundamentally. People were tired of the kind of uh, Golden Dawn or even the Elster Crowley kind of school of magic, which was more, in a sense, self-development in the sense of, you know, you, 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 the idea was to have what they call the knowledge and conversation of your holy guardian angel, mm-hmm. which is sort of a mystical experience. And you go through the magical rituals and all of that to do that. And these guys said, look, we're tired of that. We, we, don't want, we want to make things happen. You know, we want that kind of magic. We want to sort of do something and then concrete results and so they and they also were tired of all the rigmarole all of the you know you had to get the circle just right and you had to do it at the right time and you had to get all the sigils just perfect and all the little you know minutia and impedimenta they just got and they said let's just make it up you know let's mm-hmm. just make it up as we go along and so they started just using what whatever is at hand and it's, it's sort of on the same principle as found art you know, you're walking along the street, you see something, you pick it up, you bring it home, you take things off the mantel place, you put it there, you put something around it, and then it's art suddenly, mm-hmm. or whatever. You put it in an unusuals. And so instead of turning it into art, they were using it uh, as magical implements and, and tools. And the whole idea was basically make it up as you go along, use your imagination. And it had this free form, you know, almost, kind of, almost like jazz kind of thing mm-hmm. to it. You can make it up as you go along, and it wasn't stuffy. But it, it was fundamentally about making things happen Mm -hmm. there was the whole idea that there was a kind of fluid chaotic medium in which one could somehow you know get get into a rapport Mm -hmm. through through the rituals and then you could nudge things you could nudge Mm -hmm. things in such a way that events would take place that you wanted to happen well when it comes to making things happen we really have to uh, take a look at uh, 19th century American culture, the New Thought movement, uh, uh, and its influence on our politics here. Well, yes, I mean that's um, another side of this strange, strange um, phenomenon that's that's been happening for the last few years. This kind of incursion of a new occult politics into into the world politics, and it's many sided. It comes in from many. I mean, I, I started following this thread from one particular thing and. Once I get into it, you can see it's coming in from all directions. One of the very clear directions is that Donald Trump um, is um, a devotee of what's known as positive thinking. Mm-hmm. As are many Americans. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, of course. I mean, this is something that's uh, – well, there's a whole history of positive thinking, new thought, mental science, that that whole kind of school that goes back – well, you could say it goes back to Emerson. Um, he coined uh, the phrase new thought mm-hmm. and um, – and it's again depends how far back you want to go. You can link it to ancient Hermetic philosophy. You can link it to you know Indian, uh, Eastern mysticism. The whole idea that the mind is fundamentally paramount, and you know what we see as the outside world is a product of the mind. Um, but Emerson coined the phrase. William James, uh, the great American philosopher and psychologist, he was a practitioner of it. Uh, he he wrote. Uh, positively about it no pun intended and he uh even um uh lobbied against uh, legislation that would inhibit uh mm-hmm. access to sort of new thought material so uh, he took it seriously enough that um you know it was something that he you know he he uh went to bat for um and but in the particular school that uh, trump um belonged to this was something that was developed by uh norman vincent peale whose uh, book was a bestseller yeah, absolute bestseller. The power uh, of positive power thinking. Positive thinking. It's, it still continues to sell many thousands of copies today. Uh, he was a very famous, um, well-known figure in the United States for many, many years uh, uh, through the through the books, through the sermons he gave at the Collegiate Church on uh, Fifth Avenue on Twenty Ninth Street in New York. Uh, he had a radio show, newspaper columns, and all that. But Trump's father trump's parents were devotees of this and they used to go to his sermons and trump as a boy would go and then later on uh as a you know as an adult i guess uh he he, he went uh uh as well and he had two of his weddings uh took place there and uh i mean i mean the highest praise uh i think uh 
some of the highest praise Peel ever got was that Trump uh, said once that after listening to one of his sermons, he could sit there and listen for another hour. And for someone who's not known to have a particularly long attention span, I think that's you know that mm-hmm. that's high praise, high praise indeed. So, uh, the, but the what Peel did was he took this the fundamental idea of new thought is that thoughts are causative. You know what we think can affect the outer world. I mean, it's it's doing it right now. We're just not aware that it's doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, through different methods, you can become aware of how, of how, you know, your thoughts are changing the world. And then you can, you know, use it to your advantage. Uh, I mean, it started out first as a kind of um, health-oriented sort of thing. The Christian science was sort of a, a, a branch of it or part of it and all that. Then it kind of moved to sort of self-development. But then gradually it moved over to sort of, you know, prosperity, you know, what's known as the prosperity gospel and that kind of thing. How to have, you know, Napoleon Hill, you know, think yourself rich and things of that sort. Um, and this, this Peels was sort of like that. He sort of, he sort of put a, a kind of homely Christian spin on this whole idea that through these sort of more or less magical practices of, of, you know, uh, using the imagination, you know, visualizing very clearly what you want and, and thinking about it, you know, very intently, you know, uh, over a long period of time and then kind of like sending it out into the world and kind of imagining it already happening, act as if it already has taken place. And this is what he called a realizable wish. And um, this was something that, you know, Trump has, has practiced. And, uh, and he writes, if you read any of his own self-help books, like The Art of the Deal, many of the kind of, um, you know, aphorisms or sort of, uh, you know, little, little messages from, from positive thinking turn up in there as well. And strangely enough, though, one of the things I say in the book is that it shares with chaos magic uh, this, um, I, uh, this, the, whole, the whole idea of, of it being results-driven. It, 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 it too wants to make things happen in the world. And if you kind of boil away all the kind of, you know, kind of uh, outer kind of um, coloring of both of the things, fundamentally, they're sort of doing the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, that, that to me was just a very interesting discovery. So in a way, you know, Trump is doing something similar to, or at least he's following the, 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 the teaching that, uh, uh, you know, a kind of practice that's very similar in its mm-hmm. basics to what chaos magic is. And the other, the next step to that is like, well, Trump strikes me as a natural born kind of chaos magician. You in your book have a very interesting chapter called the demagogues and gurus in which you sort of look at the dark side of all of this. If, if people were just practicing positive thinking and chaos magic for the purpose of creating a better world for everyone, uh, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation, but it does seem as if uh, when people get involved in the use of, uh, mental concentration and magical rituals for the purpose of gaining power, uh, there seems to be a tendency for the uh, uh, magical practice to gain control of the individual in a negative way. Yes, indeed. Way. Yeah, well, yes, indeed. I mean, uh, well, one of the things I try to point out in the book is there's a kind of gradient, you know, between, say, the, the, the magician, the guru, and the demagogue. Mm-hmm. And they all seem in different ways excuse me, um, to be doing the same sort of thing. I mean, the magician wants to say, you know, uh, mystify one, one particular person or maybe an audience or something like that, you know, for, you know, a short period of time, uh, to fool you in some kind of way, or, or even, you know, say a real magician to kind of, you know, do a Svengali on you. And then the guru does that to a kind of group over a longer period of time. And then the demagogue is doing that to a whole nation. And you can see, you know, <clears throat> Again, it's it's in some ways it's it's sort of cliched, but if you look into how someone like Hitler and someone like Mussolini operated, you can see in many ways where they're using kind of techniques that are very similar to what a guru or or a magician is kind to do. And you know, people have made connections between someone like Hitler, let's say, and Aleister Crowley, um, whose own philosophy. Uh, although he's, you know, not as evil, you know, as, you know, uh, Hitler in any way. I mean, Crowley really wasn't evil. I think he just was incredibly sort of, you know, uh, egotistical and, uh, it, you know, absolutely oblivious of other people. Um, but his own political philosophy is, you know, not that far away from the kind of a master race mm-hmm. sort of thing. Uh, and um, and you, you, you can see where, you know, there's a connection between this kind of power. Some, I mean, what is magic about? Magic is about power, you know, in this way. Okay. I made a distinction 
a little while ago between, say, the Golden Dawn kind of magic and the chaos magic. Uh, and the chaos magic is about kind of power in that sort of way of like wanting to make things happen. The Golden Dawn magic, let's say, it's about power, but it's a kind of inner power. It's a sort of, you know, it's a change in yourself. So it's not, it's not directed out into the world, and it's not directed into trying to manipulate other people. Uh, but there does seem to be a kind of uh, uh, strong, as you say, you know, it's, 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 is, this, is this power for good or is it for evil? I mean, it's a cliche to say it's up to the person using it. But there does seem to be a kind of vortex. There does seem to be a kind of gravitational pull that starts to, you know, overtake as you said, the person, uh, they continually sort of seek more and more of it where they lose, you know, they, they lose their mooring and, and they get caught up into this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, that's why there's so many admonitions in the, you know, the, uh, magical tradition. Don't call up what you can't, what you can't put down. Well, you have someone like, uh, the poet W.B. Yeats, who was, um, member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and was a practicing magician and, you know, one of the great poets of the 20th century. But he said, you know, what, 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 basically what, whatever we, you know, focus on in our imagination will be accomplished in, in, in our lives. I'm sort of paraphrasing him, but, um, he knew that, yes, you know, thoughts are things, you know, thoughts can create imagination can go beyond, you know, the barrier of the mind out, you know, of, of our inner world out into the world. It can have real effect. Mm-hmm. You use a word in your book. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Egregore is is, is that that's the, how I pronounce it. That's how I do. I, I I could be wrong. I don't know. Well, it's an interesting word in in this context because it does have to do with the use of a meme for magical purposes, and uh, the egregore itself, as as you describe it, becomes. Uh, sort of addictive to the people who get involved uh, with it. Maybe you could explain that further. Yeah, uh, uh, egregore is a French term for a kind of um, entity that's created by a kind of group mind, let's say. Uh, it's, it's a sort of imaginative being that is created over time by the attention, the devotion, the thoughts, uh, the intention of, of a group. And um, But that's a certain point, uh, once it you know, matures, let's say, or becomes comes into full manifestation, it can start to you know take over, mm-hmm. and this is something that's talked about um, in a remarkable book called Meditations on the Tarot. Uh, it's it's published anonymous, um, uh, uh, and it was written uh, in the sort of fifties and sixties, uh, and it has a, a remarkable chapter about uh, the egregore as this kind of um, you know dark spiritual entity that's brought into being by the you know the repeated attention and imagination and thinking and focusing of a group of people and uh the the uh, another sort of entity or phenomena like that um that i do talk about in the book is what what's known as a tulpa mm-hmm. and that's that's in the tibetan uh, sort of tradition and that's um that's sort of a mental entity or kind of um you know, thought form uh, that's created by you know a single person, let's say, um, and and uh, it gradually, gradually comes into existence, and then it can kind of take on a life of its own. And there's a famous story by um, the, the great uh, uh, traveler Alexander David Neal, uh, one of the remarkable women of of uh, the last century, uh, one of the first women in in into Lhasa, in, in, uh, in a white woman, you know, European, and uh, she tells a story where she was you know. Uh, uh, staying in a monastery, and she was studying with the monks there, and they told her about this phenomenon about about tulpas, and so she learned how to make one. And gradually, over time, she she visualized this monk, and it took on more and more sort of solid form. And then, you know, people were saying that it, it could kind of bump into it, or you know, it could it could feel, it could feel they could feel them the monk you know going past them and you know sort of brushing up against them. But at some point, it grew past her control she lost control of it and so the you know the other monks or the head of the monks they were coming saying look you got to go you got to take care of this tulpa it's out there it's causing a lot of trouble it's getting into people's places it's you know really being a bother and so she had to spend a great many months trying to like withdraw it in a kind of thing and you know i i I bring these things up because i think there's kind of parallels to these kind of phenomena or at least the possibility of the parallels to these phenomena in this um, new you know, exteriorized imagination we live in now that we, you know, we that you and I right now are communicating over, mm-hmm. you know, on on the internet. It's this kind of exteriorized world in which 
um, I think phenomena like you know like like the egregor or the telpa can can take place, and this is one of the things that the book is about, and that's precisely mm-hmm. how the alt right say that they they put Trump into power. Richard Spencer, who uh, takes credit for coining the phrase alt right. Uh, made the statement that we willed Trump into power or we dreamed Trump into power, implying some sort of a, an act of magic. Well, this was how this, this, this book, um, Dark Star Rising started. It was, um, after Trump's election, you know, when, when his, his victory, uh, there was the annual meeting of the National Policy Institute, which is a very innocuous name for a group that many people you know uh, see as you know very far right and richard spencer who um founded the alternative right the alt-right he was the sort of the head you know the chairman or whatever of the uh, national policy institute at the time and they held a meeting in washington it was in the ronald reagan building it was a day or two after the election and he began it uh by you know you know, sort of charging up in front of the audience and saying, hail Trump, hail our hero, hail our victory. We made this happen. As you say, we dream, you know, we we made this dream a reality. We willed Trump into office and they called it a victory of the will. And um, what the response to that was quite a few sort of Hitler salutes you know, in, in the audience. So Spencer later on explained that they were Roman salutes, but, you know, whatever. Um, and this was covered by all, you know, the newspapers, CNN and everything else. It was all, all there. But one one sort of report on it in particular stood out, and it was by a fellow named um, Harv, Harv Bishop, um, who has a blog about New Thought. He's kind of a New Thought, you know, kind of uh, teacher, and, and he writes a blog about it. And he said, my God, this sounds like, you know, Spencer and the alt-right are using new thought techniques in order to, you know, uh, 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 put Trump into office in, 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 in order to win, win the election. And, uh, I mean, that passed by, you know, most people, but I thought, and I said, oh, God, that's, that's, that's very strange. And, you know, at that time, I don't know how you you felt, but I, I know a lot of people I were in contact with, it was just after the election, everyone felt like something really strange had happened, you know. I mean, I, I say in the book that Trump's election struck me as, as the singularity that everyone has been waiting mm-hmm. for, when reality was going to be different. Well, it is different. It has been different, you know, since then. It was it was getting very different up to then, and then bang, it, it, it became very, very different. So I was in contact with lots of people who were saying, what's going on? And then, as I also said um uh, this this article about you know uh, Bannon and and uh, Evola turning up in the New York Times and all this sort of thing and it seemed to be all this stuff that was kind of on the fringe mm-hmm. you know on on the margins of the everyday world was suddenly smack dab in the middle of it you're talking about magic in the context of the the you know pr- the newly elected president of the United States mm-hmm. uh, and so on and so on so I started following all these kinds of, of of threads and how they were supposed to have affected this magic was through the internet and this is through something that came to be known as meme magic and a meme we know is a a phrase that was coined or a term that was coined by richard dawkins of selfish gene fame and you know as he said it's kind of the cultural equivalent of a gene so it's a kind of unit of cultural uh, whatever you want to call it sort of value whatever it is it's a, a slogan it's an image it's some phrase or something it gets picked up and generated um and Again, um, it, oh, the way that memes used to be, you know, distributed, disseminated in the old school was through books or television or radio or movies or something like that. And um, but nowadays, it's through the internet, it's through social media. Mm. Memes exist on again; they exist in this exteriorized imagination that we call the internet, the newosphere, whatever you want to call it. It's it's out there, and the memes operate in the, in that realm. Um, and so. Okay, so you have that. So, okay, that's a meme. It's on the internet. What's the magic bit to it? Well, the magic bit is something that came to be known as synchro mysticism, which is basically a techno updated term of, 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 of re, it's, it's a techno retread of synchronicity, Jung's idea mm-hmm. of synchronicity. The synchronicity is meaningful coincidence. When something that's happening in my head, I see it outside in the world. There's no causal connection, but there's an immediately deeply felt meaningful one that I can't ignore. And I suddenly I think, my God, what's going on? Is the world somehow knows what I'm thinking about and it's showing me a sign right now? Okay. You transfer that, which happens out in the world, to the internet. And how this came about was um, 
these kind of online addicts that were into like posting stuff all the time. There was a website called 4chan. Still exists, and, I believe. Yeah, yeah, still, still, still out there. Yeah, still out there. Yeah, and uh, they, they, they had a thread called Bane posting, and they were fascinated with the opening scene from uh, Dark Knight Rises, the Batman film. Uh, if you're not familiar with the, the bad guy Bane, he's on the he's on the plane, and he's ostensibly being taken to jail, but uh, but in fact he's in, he's really in charge. He's running the show, and you know suddenly he's free and he's in control. And not only is he in control, but he's escaping and he's crashing the plane and all that. And they kept posting like you know bits of this, you know, and sort of whatever playing around with it. And then somebody started somebody note after after this was going on for a while. Somebody noticed that there seemed to be similarities between that stuff they were posting and that the tragic German wings 9525 crash in, in the Alps. And um, the crash site was near a town called Bain. And one of the crash site investigators was named Bruce Robin. And we know Batman's real name is Bruce Wayne and Robin is a sidekick. Uh, and as it seemed, as it, Turned out the plane was crashed on purpose just in the film and so on. And so there were other kind of similarities. So they were jokingly mm-hmm. thinking, hey, man, did we make this happen? You know, we, we put this stuff up, up on the Internet and then, wow. And so, so that was kind of the premise. Mm-hmm. So if you accept synchronicities, and I do, uh, they, enough of them have happened to me that I just, they're just part of the world. I don't know how they happen, but th- they certainly do. Okay, transfer to the electronic world. Well, why not? Why couldn't there be kind of, you know, electronic synchronicity between what's taking place on the net and and out in the outer world. So I guess the next step is if it happens spontaneously, can you make it happen? That's the magic bit. Can Mm -hmm. you make it happen? And so they took this idea that if they could some, the Trump supporters, Trump fellow travelers, people that were not even necessarily, you know, behind him is that they hated all the, you know, hated all the liberal, you know, progressive, you know, politically correct world, and they just wanted to do anything to sort of irritate that, you know, to just, you know, give it the finger, basically. So, mm-hmm. Excuse me. And um, they basically commandeered uh, this meme. And the meme in question was this cartoon character known as Peppy the Frog. And again, we're talking about chaos magic, folks, so it's it gets quite strange and, <laughs> and weird and all that. Yeah. But Peppy the Frog was a, a, a basically kind of amphibian slacker. Uh, and there's a cartoonist named Matt Fury who in- invented him. He's the creator, and he was in one of his cartoon strips. And you know, as memes get picked up on the net, dip- different people play around with them, and you know, they get distributed. And so Pepe turned up with you know Nicki Minaj and Katy Perry and some other kind of celebs, and it turned out he was really cool and all that. But then this kind of you know underbelly counterculture of uh, you know, uh, anti-politically correct, you know, internet addicts got a hold of him and they started sort of using his image and, and being picked up. And then the idea was that gradually it be Pepe turned into this kind of sigil. He was this kind of, this is where the chaos magic comes into it. It's like chaos magic. You use whatever's at hand. Can, can you okay. define the term sigil? Well, a, a sigil is, a, is, is a basically, it's a magical symbol uh it's 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 a kind of design it's it's drawing uh that is charged with you know the magician's will and energy and imagination and then it's kind of you know you 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 do a ritual over it and you you send the power out and it it, you know has some kind of effect in the world what you Mm -hmm. want to do with it and the chaos magic bit comes in was like well they didn't care about making the the exact sigil you just took whatever you can you know you you grabbed a hold of whatever was at hand and so just like old school memes were, you know, stuff in books or television or on the radio and movies, the new school was what's happening on the internet. Well, Pepe was happening on the internet, so they appropriated this meme of Pepe and turned him into a magical implement, a, mm-hmm. a magical kind of uh, symbol, a sigil. And the idea was by basically saturating the net with images of Pepe, you know, uh, you, you know, and and then he got picked up as Trump. I mean, the first one was. I think it was Pepe looking over the wall or looking over the Mexican border, you know, and Trump is talking about the wall and all that kind of thing. And then there was another and another. And then I tell you, the person who made him a a household name for a while, I don't know if he still is, is, was uh, Hillary Clinton because she, she was aware what was going on. You know, she was aware that this kind of 
slacker amphibian was being turned into a postmodern swastika, as as it were. Basically, it was kind of a hate symbol. And so, in one of her interviews, she 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 gave she put the alt right on the map as well. You know, she basically gave her enemies a, a, a good stick to hit her with. But she said that you know the alt right are using this. Pepe the Frog image as this kind of hate symbol, you know, as this kind of thing. And then it really, you know, it accelerated after that. And so the idea was by, you know, putting images and images of images of, of Pepe up on, 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 the, on the net and connecting it with Trump and all that. And this would somehow have an effect in the real world. Mm-hmm. And they were encouraged in this idea. It may have started out as a joke. It may have started out as, you know, let's just do this for the hell of it. But apparently they were encouraged as an idea because Whenever they, whenever you posted something on 4chan, I mean, why people like 4chan is that it's anonymous, so there's no name. You can take your pot shots at whatever you want, and you don't have to take responsibility for it. But whenever you post something, you're given an eight-digit uh, number that I guess you know identifies that post. And what these people started noticing was whenever they would post something about Pepe, um, they started to see that they would get double numbers or triple numbers or four in a row or something like that. And they started to bet to see whether they would get it. So the idea seemed to be that something or someone was acknowledging all this attention that they were giving to it. And it was basically saying, yes, yes. You know, you talked about the egregore before you talk about this kind of, you know, you know, uh, group mind entity coming into existence. Well, that may have been the case and it's even weirder. The, the next level of weirdness was someone noticed that th- there's an ancient Egyptian deity of, of chaos that that's frog-headed. So there was an ancient Egyptian frog-headed deity that was the, the god of chaos. And that god's name was Kek, K-E-K. Now, why is Kek important? Okay, we have to go back to the uh, online gaming world. These guys were playing something called World of Warcraft, and I, I forget the exact story, but someone had somehow someone had reconfigured it in a certain way uh, so they could play it online, and this had something to do with the Korean language, but there was a, a glitch. So whenever anybody wanted to type LOL, you know, laugh out loud for something, it came up KEK, it came up Kek. All right, so the same people that are posting all the the Pepe stuff are playing this World of Warcraft game, right? It's come out somehow that Pepe is the frog is maybe related to the ancient frog headed Egyptian deity Kek. Okay. These guys over here are playing, every time they play LOL, it comes up K-E-K. So they start doing instead of even trying to say LOL, they just do K-E-K all the time. So suddenly there's a Kek here and there's a Kek there. And there's the frog. And and so every it all kind of turns into oh, or have we somehow risen up, you know, <laughs> called called back the ancient Egyptian, you know, god of chaos. Or, you know, as I think, was there some, who knows, was it Thulu? Was there some weird, you know, Lovecraftian entity on the other dimension who notices, oh, these people are playing around here. They're, they're opening portals. Maybe I can get through. I mean, I'm, you know, I say it tongue-in-cheek, but you don't know. Because all these synchronicities started happening. They started piling on top of each other. And there's even, you know, people even started talking about Kekistan, which was this you know, imaginal country that all of the devotees of Keck, you know, inhabited. So, I mean, it sounds crazy, but I mean, and there's no conspiracy theory in here at all. This is all stuff I just picked up, you know, by just doing research and all that. But when you sort of, again, you put all the pieces, it's sort of like a Lovecraft story. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, if, you, if you know you Lovecraft, he says, you know, the, the most merciful thing um, in existence or something is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. So, you know, you have all these little bits of information, but if you ever put them together, my God. So I sort of felt like, Oh my God, this is kind of weird. What, what is going on Mm -hmm. here? Well, when we talk about chaos, it strikes me as a parapsychologist. I I could be wrong. I have to look at this more (laughs) carefully, but I did do a, a lengthy study of a man who seemed to exert uh, very um, striking psychokinetic control over the weather. The weather is a chaotic system, and it does <laughs> yeah. seem as if chaotic systems are, by their very nature, more amenable to psychokinesis than stable systems are. Well, I, th- I, th- I think that's the case, right? That you sort of um, this whole idea um, sensitivity to initial conditions. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole the whole butterfly 
flapping his wings in China and there's a thunderstorm in, in Wyoming or something along those lines. So I guess, you know, chaos, as far as I understand it, you know, I'm, I'm not a practitioner, but I've done some study. I know some um, uh, people who do practice it, and I'm actually doing something here in London um, in December uh, with um, a fellow named Julian Vane, who's a well-known uh, chaotician, is one of the or chaote, uh, I guess. Um, but yeah, there does seem to be a similar kind of idea where there's a kind of fluid situation, and if you can somehow nudge it in the right way, mm-hmm. it will bring about something over there. You know, the, the initial nudge doesn't look like anything. It doesn't. You know, if, if no one else knows that this is going to turn into something else, but because you've somehow gained a rapport with the fluid motion of things and you can understand how other things are happening. And again, this is the, again, this is something that struck me as important. The other, the, another thing that both positive thinking and chaos magic share is the, the idea is that it's, uh, I was going to say, um, Norman Vincent Peale calls it a realizable wish. So in many ways, don't expect a miracle. You know, you, you, you have to, wish was something that you could possibly achieve mm-hmm. through normal methods, but it just isn't happening right now, you know, and you need, you need some help. So it's like, you can't wish for something that's impossible. You can't wish for something that is so improbable. It wouldn't happen. That's be something that, you know, is achievable. And what the chaos magicians talk, they talk about an achievable reality. Mm-hmm. So again, it's, you don't asking for miracles. You're asking for something that could take place. It, it you know quite easily could take place, but something's in the way right now. And if only you could kind of just, you know, it's like a good billiard shot. Just knock that in the right way; it'll go in the pocket. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it's it's very practical and utilitarian, and uh, uh, and aimed at um, concrete results in the world. And um, I guess yes, if you could somehow, some way, you know, impress your mind, mental energy, imagination onto some chaotic system, whether it's the weather or something like what's happening on the internet, you know, why not? I mean, I guess, I don't know if it's chaotic when they're tossing the dice, but it's something that's in motion, right? You're not, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like, can you, can you push, bump, bump it a little bit there so it'll turn over, you know, to get that mm-hmm. die or something. So. Now, another point you make when it comes to power politics is that uh, autocratic leaders, Putin being one example, Hitler, Mussolini, and I suppose if we include Trump, I'm, I'm not claiming that Trump is a fascist or a Nazi, but he does seem to have uh, a, a characteristic in common with those other leaders, which is that he sees truth and facts as, as very flexible. He makes statements uh, with regard to uh, how they will benefit benefit his own purposes, not whether or not they're true. Well, this is one of the things he learned from Norman Vincent Peale, uh, was the idea that uh, facts aren't important. It's your attitude toward the facts. Mm-hmm. Um, Peale got that from the psychologist Carl Menninger, and he, he quotes him doing it. But I mean, in a way, you can see that going back to the ancient um, Stoic philosophers, uh, uh, Epictetus, who said, it's not things that disturb us, it's what we think about things. So it's basically your attitude is what's important. But where the Stoics are basically saying, you know, put up with everything, you know, because in the long run, you know, it all works out for the good. Um, they had this kind of vision of a world reason, and it all turned out for the better in the long run. Yet, unfortunately, right now for you, you have just have to put up with something that's uncomfortable. Trump, let's say, or uh, Peel had a more aggressive or a more positive way of seeing it whereas like you know you know you, you don't develop an attitude that will sort of put up with things you develop an attitude where you just kind of bat the facts mm-hmm. away so they're no longer they don't trouble you and mm-hmm. you can see you know trump is all the time it's everything is upbeat you know about himself and whatever he's doing whatever the you know uh policies and you know he's trying to enact and all that i mean he says negative things it's always about other people you know it's not it's never about himself or anything like that and this whole idea that yes if you um and, you know, he shares, again, you know, I mean, I'm, it's, it's easy to make very general kind of analogies between, you know, Trump and Hitler and Mussolini and, um, you know, th- th- those are cliches, but still, there are very similar kinds of things. And it, as you say, they all shared this idea that, um, no, it was what they did was impose their reality upon, you know, the world around them, upon, you know, uh, the people around them in different ways. And they shared very common kinds of things. I mean, both Hitler and Mussolini, they kept everybody on their toes. They didn't sort of tell everybody their plans. Uh, they would change plans at the last minute, things of that sort. Mussolini was very, very, very theatrical. Um, he would able to change from one kind of 
kind of personality to another. If he was speaking to sort of like workmen, he would appear like, you know, kind of like a workman and part, you know, blue collar and socialist. Then he also hobnobbed in the high society and all that kind of thing. And, uh, and both of them were kind of like failed artists. Um, you know, I mean, I, I always joke that if only somebody bought Hitler's paintings, you know, I mean, it, it might, it might, <laughs> it might, it might not have happened. You know, he was, he was an artist and he transferred his vision from the watercolors he was doing, you know, to the real world. Mussolini um, thought of himself as an actor. He wanted to sort of be a great actor or something like that. And he wasn't able to do it acting on the stage, but he was able to act in, in you know, in the real world and a, and a larger kind of thing. I mean, even in that sense, you know, that there shows you the power of the imagination, the frustrated imagination where it doesn't have one channel to get out. It comes out in this other way there. I mean, Trump... Is different because he was able to, um, you know, he had a whole career, obviously, of you know, as a, as a, you know, um, developer and a builder and all that kind of thing. Uh, then he had a television career, and that, you know, there he he, it's very, what what do you want to say? I mean, uh, he was the uh, that show where he was hiring and firing people all the yeah. time. Host uh, of the Apprentice. Uh, the Apprentice. I mean, uh, I, I say in the book there was a there was a book written in the. Um, 40s by a fellow named Siegfried Krakauer, uh, called From Caligari to Hitler. And his argument was all these films made in the early 20th century, in the 19-teens and 1920s in Germany, like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, if you remember the fantastic black and white expressionist film, and then there were uh, Fritz Lang, Dr. Mabuza, and another Metropolis. They all have a kind of Mr. X or a kind of, you know, character who's in control who's you know a, a kind of master hypnotist who's controlling everybody and his argument was that those films primed kind of the german public for the rise of the fuhrer they kind of primed them for some master character coming up and you know doing precisely that and you can kind of see you know if you want to stretch it you can kind of see well trump was doing that for years on the television show and he's doing the same kind of thing he wears the you know he wears the coat he has the big tie you know he's he's always sort of showing himself to be in power he he, he bestows you know he's he's gracious and he bestows things at times and you know he's the good hand sometimes and there's the bad hand and that kind of thing so there's lots of lots of similarities in there and the whole idea was to create this other world around you and he's very good at it you know he, he, he the whole career he had in in, in wrestling Again, this this is why I, I said there's in no way am I trying to uh, stigmatize chaos magicians. I, I'm not saying they are in any way in league with Trump, and I don't think Trump ever ever heard the phrase. But once I started looking into it and seeing how he operated, there were just some things that he did that yeah. just sort of fell into place. It just seemed to be he was naturally born to do this, like the whole idea of creating glamour. You create some kind of aura around yourself that that. Uh, basically controls how people see you. I mean, there's a, there's a great story he tells. I think it was down in Atlantic City where he was you know, supposed to be building the, the, the casino. And investors wanted to go and see the work that was going on. And everything was stalled for some reason. Nothing was going on. But what he did was he had somebody you know, with a, a big digger, like dig, 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 dig tons of dirt out of some hole and take it to the other side of, of, of the lot where they were working and they just dump it. And the guy was just going back and forth and doing this. And he sort of created the impression of work going on and the investors said oh well oh, it seems you guys are busy and all that and they whatever they went off to have drinks or something and something so that's you know he mm -hmm. creates the illusion of something he was able to sort of you know do what he had to do so you know um i think he knows how to do this kind of thing naturally and it is it is has it is it does have a lot to do with this uh idea that you know you create reality you are in control mm -hmm. i mean the whole post-truth alternative fact um world we live in is is an example of that well, you conclude your book by suggesting that uh, this power to mold reality uh, doesn't reside just with the alt-right, doesn't reside just with uh, Trump or just with uh, people who are autocrats, that in effect, this, this ability is available, I should think, to all of your readers or to all of the viewers of uh, this television channel. So, it you seem to be suggesting that um, people could be taking this power into their own hands, maybe for better purposes. Well, I think they need to. I talk about um, the responsibility of the imagination. That's mm -hmm. a phrase I get from um, a writer named Owen Barfield, um, who wrote a great deal about the evolution of consciousness and was also um, a great student of, of Rudolf Steiner. Uh, but uh, no, we, we, we do. I mean, I think the thing is, you know, 
we are already contributing to the reality that we experience. We're, we are not aware of that. Mm-hmm. We open our eyes and we think the world is just out there. And we, we are just mirrors and we just reflect or we're cameras. But actually, on some unconscious level that we're not immediately in touch with or aware of, we are somehow creating. And, and I don't, you know, again, it's not creating the sense of it's just a dream and you're not real. or It's not that. It's just somehow the mind at some level is organizing the world around us, you know, um, and all of the spiritual traditions, and I would say all of the, you know, important psychological traditions are in some way, and philosophical ones, are in some way involved in trying to make that clear. So how is that happening? You know, how is that taking place? And that to me is the deep kind of side of the we create our own reality mm-hmm. um, kind of thing. That's the kind of thing I think that people like William Blake or Yeats or, or Swedenborg and Jung and, and others, I think they're the ones who are, you know, that's the kind of we create our own reality scenario that, that they're exploring. There's a more superficial kind of level where it's like, okay, well, in that case, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, you know, and Yes, of course, we can we can do that in a way if, you know, if your life is diminished, if you feel like you're not, you know, living life to the full and, you know, you want more, of course, take take charge of it and, you know, set yourself goals and, and, and achieve them and all that kind of thing. But it's the kind of power magic that you're sort of, you know, talking about earlier where you say, well, if I create my own reality, then I, I want to do this and I want to do this and I want to do this. I Personally, I it's for me, it's less that I want to do all those things. I, I want to be aware of how am I doing it already? You know, mm-hmm. how, how are my prejudices and, you know, whatever, my inclinations and assumption, assumptions informing this world that I think is just there? You know, I'm basically, I you know, I guess Jung would say you want to withdraw your projections. You know, I mean, there's a variety of different ways you can talk about it. So that to me is the first step. And Along with that, and this is involved with that, is that I think the most important thing for us today is to be very, very aware of what's going on inside our minds, what's going on inside our heads. Um, That is like the new kind of market, I would say, you know, um, uh, this kind of commodification of of, of our attention, you know, where a variety of different things are, you know, uh, competing for our attention. This this talk is going to be one of them. It's going to be put up on the internet and it's going to compete with lots of other things. You know, it's much better than anything else out there, of course. But you know, it's it's you know, it's something like that too. And this is something that you know, I think we really need to be aware of. And um, this is the responsibility, responsive imagination, the sense of you know, take responsibility for what you know, what is happening inside your head and a kind of phrase I've been using in interviews is, um, you know, unlike Vegas, what happens in the mind doesn't stay there. It doesn't necessarily stay there. You know, they say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, what happens in the mind, it doesn't necessarily stay there. It goes out into the world. Mm -hmm. And we need to be aware, I think, of that, of what's happening and, and, you know, take control of that. Yeah. That's one of the core principles of the new thought movement is that we Mm -hmm. do have the ability to control our own thoughts. Oh, absolutely. I mean, a new thought, I guess, mindfulness and a variety mm-hmm. of other things. And again, you, you know, I, I think that's an important um, development because for the longest time, well, you know, thoughts, what's thought? Thoughts are just stuff that's going on inside your head. It doesn't really matter. You know, what, what matters is the real hard physical kind of world. And more and more we're realizing, well, no, actually, you know, what is going on inside your head is, is very, very important. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we have to make sure what we don't want is to create a new kind of, you know, anxiety and paranoia, like, oh, my God, what am I thinking? Am I, am I, am I thinking bad thoughts? You know, we don't want that either, because that, that's just going to, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's going to be counterproductive. But it is a sort of just becoming more aware. And unfortunately, you know, for a variety of reasons, we have created a world around us where it's increasingly difficult to get access to the closest thing to us, which is our own interiority. It's harder and harder to find the quiet, you know, and the solitude in which you, because you need to have that to be able to devote to it. You know, so much, as I said, so many things around us are competing for attention. So um, I think in a way, you know, we, we have to sort of all take a kind of, interior journey. We have to make sure we're taking this kind of interior mm-hmm. journey more often. Uh, and it, you know, uh, uh, there's a variety of different ways you can do it. There's, you know, we, we all know there's, there's, you know, there's libraries full of different uh, techniques and methods of doing it. Um, I, I don't think it matters much, so much which one you take is that you get started. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me that if, if we don't take responsibility for our own interior life, there are plenty of other people out there who would like to take well, responsibility. Well, they will. I mean, it's, <laughs> well, it, I, I see it in the same way as sort of this colonization, as this kind of thing where somehow, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, 
in the olden days, explorers went someplace and they stuck the flag. And I, you know, I, I named this land, whatever, and, you know, whatever queen, so-and-so, and people already living there. So likewise here, you know, this, 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 this interior space is, you know, uh, ripe territory to be colonized. And, you know, we have to sort of make sure that you occupy it already. I mean, I, I don't want to disparage people that are activists, but you can occupy Wall Street, but you could also occupy your mind. Mm-hmm. And I, you don't have to go anywhere to occupy your mind, except someplace quiet where you can do that. But you, you absolutely need to do that, I would say. Well, Gary Lockman, once again, this has been a uh, dazzling experience uh, having a conversation like this with you. We've touched on many, many points of philosophy, psychology, politics, and uh, popular culture. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you so much, Gary. Well, it's been absolutely my pleasure and uh, very, very happy to do it again sometime. I look forward to our next conversation. Me too.